Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week, I spoke with Daniel von Strien, a digital curator working at the British Library. Daniel has worked on a number of projects at the intersection of archives, libraries, and machine learning, and I was really happy to have the chance to get to unpack some of the ways he's finding he can apply these techniques and tools. In particular, I found it interesting how important the annotation process is as part of many overall workflows there, as well as how simple out-of-the-box techniques like image classification using a fine-tuned model could satisfy many low-hanging fruit type use cases. I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I um, did an undergraduate degree in history, um, so mainly economic and social history, um, and then kind of thought about going into academia and doing a PhD and all of that uh, kind of thing, um, but decided that wasn't really where I wanted to go um, and decided instead to, to kind of focus on working in libraries. Um, so I, I did a master's in library science. Um, and then ever since then, I've worked in various different uh, types of libraries. Um, and yeah, one of the things I've been interested in when working in libraries is um, yeah, how new technologies can support the work that libraries do. Um, and as a kind of uh, way of pursuing that, I at some point kind of realized that I'd need to learn to do some coding. Um, and once I kind of got into that world, um, quite quickly discovered machine learning as something that, you know, both is potentially very powerful for libraries, but also something that I really enjoyed. And I um, think particularly thinking about the kind of broader machine learning process and not just training models, but all of the, the stuff that goes along with it um, was particularly interesting to me. Um, and, th and the main way I got started with, th with that was through the uh, Fast AI course, um, which I think a lot of people kind of made their start uh, using that course. So that was really a nice intro because it was very practical in its focus. And I think gives you a really good um, yeah, inroad to actually getting uh, stuck into machine learning uh, as a discipline. Um, and at the moment, I'm working uh, at the British Library. Um, so I work on a research project called Living with Machines. And the goal of that project is to um, see how data science um, approaches and machine learning can potentially be useful for working with um, large-scale digitized collections. So the British Library, uh, like many other uh, similar institutions over the past uh, decade or so, have been digitizing more and more um, of their physical material um, and through uh, technologies like OCR, making that uh, material machine readable. And that uh, is kind of getting to the stage where working with that using traditional approaches doesn't kind of work anymore. Um, so this Living Machines project is, um, yeah, one attempt to try and uh, start doing some work thinking about how um, those methods can work with that kind of material and particularly how some of the methods that are developed for quite different domains and applications can be made to work with, uh, you know, different material, but also different kinds of questions that people might have of that material. Let's just take a step back. I, I wonder, 
I even wonder whether some of the, some people living uh, listening um, listening to this podcast may almost live in a world where they're kind of uh, you know what even is the point of libraries anymore? Like, isn't everything mm-hmm. online? Um, I was wondering maybe you could just talk a little bit about um, yeah, I guess some of the things where uh, in an answer to that question, talk about some of the ways that that ML is being used to um, to enhance in 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 this space, whether it's archives or libraries. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess with the the first point about everything being online, um, that's definitely um, becoming the case in some senses. But I think having material online tends to actually be quite brittle um and you can kind of see that when social media uh kind of platforms change um or kind of websites shut down then quite often a lot of material is lost um so actually one of the areas that a lot of libraries and archives are starting to work in more and more is around kind of digital preservation um, and managing what is called uh born digital material um um, and that kind of touches on what you mentioned as well about, you know, uh, how machine learning can help with that material, because, you know, traditionally libraries are used to managing collections of kind of individual things like books and, um, you know, documents. Um, but when you're kind of ingesting, um, you know, the whole of the UK web space, for example, then, you know, it's not possible to kind of manually sit down and catalog and say, oh, this website is about these topics and uh, should have these kind of tags. Um, so then it becomes much more um, interesting to think about how potentially machine learning can be used to either automate or assist humans um, in in that process of kind of curation of the material. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess the the kind of challenge is doing that in a way that is still sensitive to uh, the kind of curatorial uh, goals you might have with some of that material. So, um, you know, when you're doing web search, your goals might be slightly different to when you're, um, you know, looking at, a web archive to do historical research, you might want different results. So that does kind of pose some challenges in, you know, how you can just use these materials um, out of the box, as it were. Um, and yeah, I guess the the other, um, well, I think there's other areas of libraries where machine learning is increasingly being used. I think a lot of the interest has been around automating uh, the production of metadata. I think for kind of obvious reasons, that seems like a good use case. But I think that's one in a way that has uh, quite a lot of potential risks associated with it and potential um, problems that can come up. So I think there's actually quite a a big scope for using uh, what I like to call kind of boring machine learning for very kind of mundane uh, internal processes that might not be that publicly visible to the users of libraries, but uh, are quite useful for the people working in those institutions. Um, so one area um, I think is particularly interesting is around um, kind of digitization workflows. So because libraries are doing all of this digitization you know, those processes themselves are, uh, are quite involved. And um, I think there's quite a lot of scope for machine learning to help um, 
flag potential issues in those pipelines and not necessarily take any direct action, but flag that to um, a human who can then uh, make a decision about whether to intervene um, in a particular process or not. Yeah, and I guess, um, I mean, maybe 10, perhaps 15 years ago, there was this kind of um, wave of projects that tried to achieve similar results through crowdsourcing. And I guess sort of what I'm hearing is is maybe there's a vision of machine learning taking over some of those things that in the past would have been done by these crowdsourced projects. Is that right? Yeah, I guess a little bit, but maybe also thinking about how to combine those two um, different approaches. So um, there's been kind of projects from the Library of Congress and uh, other institutions where they've used crowdsourced data as training data for machine learning models. And I guess what a lot of people are interested in is how you can potentially have this feedback loop where, you know, humans or machines do some initial labeling and then they kind of correct each other's results um obviously that's quite challenging to set up and i think the area where machine learning i think could potentially replace crowdsourcing is um in areas where you need a lot of domain specific knowledge to kind of actually produce uh you know data uh, or metadata for particular collections or uh, topics. Um, And I think also that's where potentially um, the kind of users of collections might actually interact with machine learning as well. So if a a researcher has a particular question they want to explore um, using a digitized collection at some scale, um, actually being involved in kind of curating, as it were, their own machine learning model to focus in on the things they're interested in uh, could be, you know, quite powerful. So instead of having a recommendation system that's kind of black box, you actually get to fiddle around with it. Um, And obviously there's a lot of questions about how you present that in a way that is, um, you know, comprehensible to someone who's not an expert in that, that field. Um, and also potential challenges around reproducibility of those results because, uh, you know, that's not something traditionally humanities researchers have thought that much about. But I think increasingly being able to say how you generate a particular set of results is becoming kind of more important, you know, across many different domains. Yeah, it definitely feels like um, I, I was involved in a big um, archival project um, in the past, and a lot of the tools, and particularly the kind of the large models, um, pre-trained models, would mm-hmm. have made a lot of tasks uh, around the kind of the curation um, of of the data much easier. Um, but it is still. I wouldn't say it's in a nascent form, but it's not. Yeah, you do need to be kind of technically minded to um, to kind of stitch all the various parts together. Um, and even, you know, even in terms of web interfaces, um, you know, people, um, yeah, it's, there's a lot of different ways where you could, um, bring non-technically minded users into connect to, to things, whether it's even just, whether it's, uh, did we classify this document, right? Yes or no, mm-hmm. button thing which you, which you place on the website. Um, but yeah, we're not quite there in terms of, um, yeah, 
out of the box solutions that do everything that every everyone might want. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the the questions that I often have as well is about how much you present uh, the kind of background machine learning process to an end user. So coming back to the kind of automated metadata generation, I think at the least you should say that that metadata was generated through some kind of automated uh, method. But then there's a question of whether you kind of put confidence scores next to that label and, you know, maybe a link to the model and the training data. And potentially that becomes quite a, a kind of uh, difficult thing to navigate, but might be of interest to some particular users, um, depending on on their kind of uh, familiarity with, with machine learning. So in terms of the kinds of people who are driving these approaches, I mean, obviously we have this field of digital humanities, which is adjacent, if not overlapping with, um, I guess, some of these initiatives. But um, I do get the impression there's a lot of domain experts, or there's quite a few domain experts, at least, who are gaining technical skills in order to then bring back to to their own areas of expertise. Um, yeah, could you, could you say something about kind of the kinds of people that you've encountered who who are driving this? Yeah, so I think there's a few main groups. I think one, like you say, is the kind of digital humanities um, kind of research audience who I think both are either familiar with machine learning methods or kind of close enough that they can become familiar, um, but also have usually quite a good grasp of how... um, you know, libraries and those kind of institutions work. So I think they're a little bit more sensitive to some of the potential issues that can come up. I think there has been a few kind of forays from kind of more traditional machine learning or data science people into libraries, sometimes in collaboration with those institutions, sometimes just working with the data. And I think that can work well, but I think there's sometimes that... um, that kind of nuance around how collections are managed and organized that can be a little bit hard for uh, someone not from that world to kind of be aware of. So, you know, a thing that's often obvious to someone who has like a history or a library science background is that, you know, archives and libraries don't hold everything about a particular topic. Uh, There's things that are missing for various different reasons, some of which are, you know, uh, very kind of specific to a collection, but um, could be very mundane things as well. So with the example of digitization, some materials not digitized just because the book was too big or too small to easily digitize. Um, but that means you have kind of gaps in what's actually in your collection. So, you know, saying, you know, we looked at a million books and found this isn't always that straightforward because you looked at a million books that aren't necessarily representative of what was published uh, at the time. Uh, So that kind of nuance, I think, is important. And going back to your question, why I think it is really important for people uh, working in these institutions to become at least kind of literate, maybe in machine learning, if not uh, doing it themselves. So feeling that they are confident enough in roughly what's going on to be involved in projects and kind of flag those potential issues um, and there's kind of various different initiatives emerging to to kind of work on that um, 
So one is uh, a, an organization called AI for LAM, which is a, um, a kind of group of different libraries and archives that um, yeah, work together to kind of learn more about machine learning and what can be done and share kind of project examples uh, and that kind of thing. Um, there's also been some kind of more focused educational initiatives. So don't know if you're familiar with something called the Carpentries, um, but it's this kind of initiative to um, help primarily researchers uh, learn computational skills. So often that's like using the command line, a bit of Git, uh, some Python. Um, and originally it was quite focused just on those core skills, but it's kind of grown into more domain specific uh, iterations of that. So you have kind of, uh, carpentries for people working in like biology or um, yeah um, digital humanities um, and I've been involved with a, a couple of colleagues in developing an introduction to uh, machine learning um, for librarians and archivists as part of that um, and that is kind of intended to be like a non-technical introduction but also not to be too hand wavy and try and focus also on like what a machine learning project actually looks like and what's involved. Cause I think the bits that are often missing both from educational material aimed at librarians, but also generally is the kind of wider thing, you know, how you create a data set, what you do once you've had, uh, you've created a model that kind of works and how you kind of fit that into a, an existing process or a new process I think a lot of materials very much like you have a nice data set that came out of somewhere don't quite know where um and then you train a model and then you're kind of uh you're done but i think it's all those other bits that actually in this particular setting might be the more important bits because i think in the end for a lot of tasks like uh standard models are going to work quite well if you thought about constructing the data set carefully and then the question is, like, how do you actually use that model uh, in a sensible way that uh, kind of works with where your institution is currently at and the problem you're actually trying to tackle? Yeah, and it, fe it feels actually maybe in contrast to, I guess, the day-to-day, -day, certainly in industry, of the way people who are working on ML, uh, machine learning, um, uh, deal with things that annotation and processes around uh, around annotation and labeling is actually pretty important particularly since quite often you'll want to be fine-tuning something and getting your data you know like you were saying earlier iteratively um, improving your your model and with data and stuff that you're annotating um, but that's often um, yeah I wouldn't say neglected but it's not a big part of how people are trained to do machine learning um, at the moment mm-hmm yeah, and I think even, um, you know, having, yeah, got into machine learning, you know, one of the first things I kind of quickly realized is that I would have to create some training data for anything that I really wanted to do. I mean, is it, there are some data sets out there, but it's unlikely you're going to find something for either the task or the kind of time period or language or uh, other property you need to consider, yeah, uh, you know, ready-made. Um and like you say, I think that's not something that's uh, discussed that much. And I think that's actually where um, 
fields like digital humanities can be quite helpful, particularly when you're, you know, trying to use machine learning, perhaps outside of like a very kind of narrowly defined kind of business use case where it might be a little bit more in the kind of research domain. So, you know, you have labels that might actually be a little bit more ambiguous than is it a dog or is it a cat? It's something that doesn't necessarily neatly fit into categories. And then having to kind of think about those labels quite carefully and potentially iterate on them numerous times. And I think that isn't usually how people talk about data set construction if they talk about it at all. Like I have this alert that set up, you know, trying to identify any papers that talk about data set construction, any data, but often it's very like vague. You know, we created a training data set is like a paragraph and then it's like but what did you actually do like how did you decide on these labels and like what tool did you use and did you have to go back and fix things and I think it's all of those kind of gory details are actually really helpful for people to kind of a understand that that's like how things tend to work but also potentially how to iterate a little bit more uh efficiently um yeah when doing that um, and I guess the other area that I think is particularly interesting in that space is um, tools like Snorkel for doing kind of this weak labeling or weak supervision, because I, I guess the the thing in many domains uh, and libraries included is there's like a lot of domain expertise that you don't want to throw away and replace by people kind of doing very crude labeling tasks when actually if they were asked to sit down and come up with some rules to generate some, you know, likely uh, signals for a particular label, they might be able to do that in a kind of very, um, very effective way. And I think that is, you know, potentially more uh, effective than getting people to yeah, just do lots of labeling uh, with not much thought beyond that. Yeah. And I, I have to, to think that the kind of, um, the interest in, um, you know, data centric AI in quotation marks, like, I think this is driving some interesting new um, approaches, particularly around annotation. There's certainly been like an explosion in the tools that are mm -hmm. available for this. Not all of them are open source and, and so on. So it's not always clear. Uh, how things are working, but uh, I do feel there's there's a, at least a bit more attention on that, which hopefully can can trickle down in other ways for um, yeah for the kinds of projects that librarians and archivists are working on. Um, yeah, yeah, and I guess the other bit of space which I feel like you know you probably know better than me that is maybe slightly missing is also you know this idea of. Uh, you know, this training data set being something that's a bit fluid and dynamic and how to actually manage that in a in a kind of meaningful way. Because I think, yeah, you can version it, but it's then versioning it in relation to like what the annotation process was. And often there's like some human input there, which is a bit messy to quantify uh, in the same way you might with, you know, here's a code change. Um, but I think that could also become more important is like, trying to manage the the way in which the data set iterates and develops over time in a in a kind of careful way um in terms of this kind of change i guess where i i'm not still not entirely sure um how widespread it is i guess in the world of archives and libraries 
uh, and maybe maybe you could speak to that but um do the institutions themselves like get that there is this thing which can improve the work that they're doing um or is or have they been slow to adopt things i think it varies a lot between institutions um I would say, you know, a lot of bigger institutions have an awareness or have already made quite a lot of investments. Um, I think it often can also depend a little bit on the specifics of an institution. So, um, for example, the Smithsonian, because they have a lot of uh, people with a background in kind of bioinformatics, I think the transition was a little bit uh, more obvious for an institution like the Smithsonian compared to an institution which might be much more humanities dominated and wouldn't necessarily have that um, kind of computational, if not machine learning uh, approach already floating around. Um, but I think, yeah, I guess that the, there is a general interest. My slight worry is that as with uh anything related to machine learning, the, the hype can uh, potentially pull the wool over people's eyes. And I think that increasingly what could happen is that um, libraries either rely solely on commercial vendors of kind of close source software to do AI stuff for them. And it's not quite clear what this AI stuff necessarily is, um, or that they kind of only rely on academic partnerships, which I think can be very valuable, but I think can steer the kind of projects you do to things that are nice to publish on rather than things that are necessarily useful for an internal process, which might not be that glamorous for someone to kind of write a paper about. Um, so I think that's part of what this kind of AI for LAM organization is also trying to yeah, help with that kind of conversation with senior leaders about, you know, what is possible, what might be possible soon and like what you actually need in place to, to make that happen. And I guess that the starting point for some institutions is also generally uh, a little bit um, unfriendly to machine learning in a way because you see a tool and it's like, yeah, you can easily deploy this on your Kubernetes cluster. And it's like, I don't have a Kubernetes cluster and I'm sure I'm not going to get one uh, anytime soon. Um, so that, I think, can pose some challenges. I think there's kind of creative ways around that. But I think that assumed, like, you must be in the cloud uh, as a starting point can also cause a little bit of friction sometimes. So, I mean, just even just on a practical level, I mean, you're a person who was not part of um was not like formally educated in machine learning or anything before and you made this transition to the extent where you now have these skills and you use them in your work and so on like do you think there are legitimate pathways to um to get more domain experts or kind of archival experts in you know more familiar with these tools i think so um i mean i kind of often maybe oversell this, but I really think that with the first lesson of the fast AI course, people can already do like very useful things for their work, basically with not much else beyond that. Um, but I think that the kind of challenges, I think, uh, around people being given sufficient time to kind of develop those skills because, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, 
trial and error and um, playing around with things that you have to go through to kind of pick up these skills, which I think not all institutions are able to provide to their staff. So I think that that's a potential um, barrier. And I guess on a related note, I think you also learn the most or a lot from doing an actual project. So even if it doesn't necessarily make it into production, as it were, trying to go through the steps involved in like, I want to deal with this particular problem or try this thing out and with this data set and going through all of those steps. I think doing that process um, can yeah really help you learn a lot. Um, so recently I've been involved in a project with some colleagues at the British Library who don't have a background in machine learning where we had a kind of particular problem we wanted to tackle um and i think having worked with uh those people through the project i think they've picked up a lot about machine learning and i think they would probably feel much more confident in uh being involved in future machine learning projects but i think also have um picked up some of those um things to be kind of wary of so you know things around like metrics like is a accuracy score of 99% good or not for a particular problem those kind of things which um, I think you can pick up in that formal education but also going through these projects particularly if you've given a bit of time to to invest in that I think that can be a really effective way of actually picking up those skills yeah I mean to, to add to what you said I think even just the the, the framing of um that you have in the, in the first lesson of fast AI, like these are some things that AI is good at. These are some kinds mm -hmm. of problems where you can apply this brute tool to, um, whether it's like image classification or the way it's, you know, you need to find a way to reshape your problem in mm -hmm. such a way that it fits in the box of image classification. It doesn't necessarily need to be that, but um, uh, I think once you see like, whatever seven or eight different things where you can get really good results as long as you pigeonhole your data in the right way um that can be really powerful for people because then they realize oh i do actually i could probably do something already with what i've got um, yeah no i think that's a really good point that yeah having to reframe problems to kind of fit machine learning rather than i think sometimes people because of the way machine learning is spoken about or AI, I guess is usually the way people put it. It's like, you know, what can I ask the AI to do? And it's like, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really respond that well to questions in that way. Um, and I think even like mundane things like seeing a training data set, okay, this is like a bunch of folders with images in, okay, that, that like I can understand is not actually that magical. Um, um, I'm curious what kinds of because you you mentioned just just a few seconds ago you were talking about you know even if this doesn't get in into production, um, I'm kind of curious what does in production look like um, in in an institution whether it's like like the British Library or or a kind of a, a t typical archive what are the kinds of infrastructure and resources that people are using you mentioned there's a hesitancy around cloud does this mean they have their own mm -hmm. big systems and clusters are they yeah, what what does this look like? Yeah, so again, I think it varies a lot across institutions. I think what I haven't seen that much of is like, 
you know, what is typically how people talk about deployment is like we set up some endpoint that gets called either as a batch job or, you know, uh, as a kind of live uh, solution. And I think what tends to happen more is that you have these kind of projects where people seek to do a particular thing and then the output of that, which is quite often a kind of derived data set, will be shared as a kind of, this is a derived data set produced via machine learning. And I think libraries are still a little bit hesitant to say this kind of fits in the same spaces as the rest of our collection. So um, there's a nice example from the uh, Library of Congress where they uh, trained a uh, object detection model to detect illustrated pages from historic newspapers. Um, so the way in which they kind of uh, put that into production, as it were, was they did run uh, the model across all of the collection, but they didn't kind of integrate that into their standard interface uh, for looking at historic newspapers, but instead it was kind of shared as a data set that's an artifact of that particular um, machine learning project. Um, so I think that's one way in which a lot of institutions tend to still share stuff. I think the other way in which things can be kind of put into production is um, much more internal facing. So uh, the project I was just talking about, um, that project had quite a, an internal goal to start with. So the the problem, you know, coming back to actually the image classification thing you mentioned was basically the the library has what is called uh, legacy digitized content. So content has been digitized over the past yeah, decade or so. And that's been digitized in various different ways. And partly as a result of that, but also partly as a result of the platforms that were used to display those uh, collections, uh, you know, being quite limited some of the material has incorrect metadata, which kind of manifests basically as a page of a digitized book having uh, the wrong label associated with it, which is expressed in the file name. Um, so this project was basically trying to detect uh, images where the file name said it was uh, what's called a fly sheet. So basically like a blank page at the end of a book where it actually was and it was something else like a cover or a spine or some other bit of a book that didn't fit into the categories that were available for displaying images uh, at the time that that uh, uh, item was digitized. And as a result, moving to a new system, the library wants to kind of go in and correct all of those mistakes. Um, and yeah, I guess that's like one of those things where machine learning does look like quite a good solution because basically it is an image classification problem of putting images into different categories. Um, and I guess one way in which you could um, deploy that uh, tool would be to say, like, I'm just going to run it across all of these images and just rename the file name to what this machine learning model uh, thinks it should be. Um, but when we were kind of working through this project, you know, we decided for various reasons that we weren't super happy about doing that. And that's partly, I guess, a slight hesitancy about the, you know, the results of that model and wanting to be a little bit more sure. Um, 
but also because of the particular workflow in which this uh, kind of uh, migration of content sits in, a lot of that material, if it was incorrectly labeled, would have to be checked anyway. So in a way like automating, it doesn't necessarily make that much sense. Um, so what we ended up um, creating is a, a tool uh, which we call FlySwap, which basically is a command line tool that you run against a, a directory uh, containing digitized books, and it will look for all of the file names where it has the kind of label for FlySheet in it. And it will then produce a report, which is basically a, a CSV document that says all of these things that were labeled as fly sheet, either the model thinks they are a fly sheet and they don't need to be checked or there's uh, something else. And someone has to go in and check those. Um, and I think to someone working in like industry, that probably sounds like very crude. And it's like a command line tool for running machine learning model is probably like a meme or something that people would uh, say, like, this is how not to do it. But um, I actually think in that particular case and uh, potentially other situations, I think there's some nice features of something like a command line tool. I think one thing kind of going back to demystifying all of this is like a command line tool is something that that team like various command line tools are things that team already use for other things so it kind of pushes machine learning more in the direction of like this is a tool that you use as part of your work it's not this is now everything is machine learning and the fact that it's slightly more mundane i think is actually quite nice um and the other thing is that because it's something that is familiar and fits with existing workflows, I think it actually ends up being much more useful than, you know, what you might do is like, oh, I've set up an API endpoint for you, but it's like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Because these images are massive and I can't like move them around easily. So um, I think that's the the kind of bit where I think libraries will have to think quite carefully about, you know, things that make sense in industry uh, don't necessarily translate and i think um it's okay to say actually we're going to do something that might seem slightly weird to an outsider but kind of works for, for what we're trying to do yeah i i actually worked on a project which sounds quite similar in a way like where i had a large quantity of documents and i needed to um to detect whether um the documents contained redactions um mm -hmm. so these freedom of information documents um and so i trained a model and in the use case which was a, a legal use case um yeah th there was no world in which you know lawyers were going to query their data against a, a live api endpoint and in any case there were kind of sensitivities and privacy and legal concerns so it's the kind of thing that you know wouldn't want to leave a, mach a single machine anyway mm -hmm. um, so i think there are there are enough use cases like that where it where it yeah still does make complete sense for for that kind of workflow. Yeah, and I quite like the idea as well that it becomes um, you know a, a tool that is there to help you. I mean, it's kind of like other command line tools. It's like can be very helpful, but often quite specific. And yeah, you you kind of feel a little bit more power over that tool, maybe, which I think for uh, a lot of reasons can be quite useful in, in this area.
Are there any patterns around the kinds of software um, that people use? I would guess that there's a preference for kind of open source software and these kinds of approaches. But then again, you did also just mention kind of um, big box um, kind of packages from from outside vendors and so on. Yeah, well, what's are there any trends there? Yeah, I'm not sure there's enough uh, adoption of any particular tool to say tr there's a trend, but I guess open source, I think, is preferable. Partly often just the cost factor is already um, enough, but I, I guess also, um, yeah, in, in the kind of broader sense, like open source models and uh, data sets potentially being very useful as a kind of starting point for for doing uh, machine learning. So I think, um, you know, platforms like the Hugging Face Hub potentially can be very useful for this sector, um, either in kind of taking a, an existing model or potentially, you know, doing a better job at saying, you know, we've created a tool that works on 19th century photos and maybe your collection has like slightly different 19th century photos but they're kind of close enough that fine-tuning this tool will work quite well so i think in that sense like open source tools are definitely preferable um i think the area that i'm kind of curious about which i haven't seen that much on yet is like how you know, things like uh, catalogs will interact with this uh, space. So I don't think many of those um, those bits of software have many affordances for necessarily integrating with machine learning, but I think increasingly that would be quite useful uh, to be able to kind of, even if it's like internally facing, to be able to easily, you know, point machine learning models at, a particular subset of your catalog and do various things um but again that that's where quite a lot of libraries do use closed sourced uh kind of software as a service uh tools for that or, or software so i think that could potentially be a, a little bit of a, a barrier um yeah i think that that's kind of probably a fair summary um, one of the things I really appreciated while I was kind of exploring the things that you've been involved in was the way that a lot of what you've done has very much been kind of built in public. Um, and, um, you know, you can go on to, to GitHub and view a whole bunch of different projects that, that and the code and, and, and the data and so on. And like you said, you, you have models up on the Hugging Face Hub as well. Uh, British Library, I think, has their own, own account and kind of organization there. Um, I'm wondering, like, is this, um, yeah, how, how common is it that people are, are, are building in public, making things available for people? Um, certainly academia has a reputation for, you know, developing not non-reproducible projects, um, uh, particularly kind of when they involve data of some sort and kind of badly written code and so on. So like, are there any best practices or approaches that people are trying to develop as a, as a community? I think there is uh, definitely a sense that people are aware that this is a useful thing to do. Um, and I think going back to the kind of education point 
if nothing else, I think it can be useful as an educational tool, even if you can't necessarily pick up the pipeline and use it for your own collections. Um, and I think it's also, um, I mean, I think it, it can be difficult because you do stuff that might not be ideal and then you might even be aware of that. And then it's like, do you want to share that? But I think it's kind of having, uh, yeah, that openness to say, hey, we did this. Maybe it wasn't perfect, but this is kind of where we got to. I think is actually quite um, important and probably something where, you know, libraries and institutions like that have a little bit more leeway because they're not kind of competing with each other in the way that um, you know, commercial companies are. So I think they have a little bit more scope for going beyond the kind of, are oh, we did a thing, here's a blog post, the details are a little bit hazy. Um, I guess the, the thing that does often cause challenges is around um, the copyright of data and uh, data protection. So I think a lot of uh, library data can be shared, but some of it can't. And I think that potentially is one of the cases where it becomes a little bit more difficult to, to share uh, things openly. Um, but I think particularly around sharing data, uh, I think there's growing interest in that and also potentially recognition that collaboratively um, developing open data sets might get institutions further than they could on their own. Um, so one of the things I've been involved in recently with uh, a few other people is something called Big Lamb, which is um, basically trying to get existing data sets that can be used for machine learning uh, with library data onto the Hugging Face Hub and making that a little bit more discoverable and easy to work with. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, increasingly people are doing that. So the more yeah recent projects I've heard about where people have used machine learning and asked the question, are you going to share your data? The answer has been like, yes, like we're working on documenting it rather than, oh, like we didn't think anyone wants it, um, which is nice to see. So I think hopefully that that will continue to develop. And maybe, I mean, relatively speaking, um, the world of machine learning and AI is actually quite open. I mean, you would think that for such a competitive industry, people would closely guard their secrets. But I mean, really, you go on the the, the places where people are sharing sharing their their research, and mm -hmm. yeah, you don't always see the fine grained details of things, or maybe people don't share every single data set and so on. But it, relatively speaking, it is quite open, and I wonder whether that gives some also uh, precedent or impetus there. No, that's true. I mean, that is, uh, I mean, also like one of the things that I found really amazing going into this uh, field, I mean, maybe you have that a little bit more generally with like programming, but just like the amount of resources and like you could quite easily construct, you know, a very thorough um, undergraduate degree in like whatever combination of machine learning things you wanted to learn about using like freely available material which I don't think can be said for that many uh, fields. Um, so I think that does help. Um, and I think like you say, like the amount of information people do share, but also like, you know, these pre-trained models that, um, you know, can cost a, a lot to generate and be very kind of 
infeasible to kind of do as a solo researcher or as an institution that you can just like download those and fine tune them is like kind of uh, amazing and uh it's a little bit like libraries in a way like if someone suggested a library now you'd be like oh, no no government's gonna go for that like um but yeah somehow that is uh emerged as a thing that people do and i think that does also make it easier for libraries to see okay like that is just the norm in this field so we also have to kind of be good citizens in that sense and i think more broadly as well the is maybe a bit of interest in the other direction in thinking about like uh, maybe libraries and the skills that um people working in libraries have could actually be useful for managing this kind of growing body of like open models and data sets and like actually that might require a bit of curation and uh some of the skills that libraries have uh developed over uh quite a long time might actually have some application there yeah for sure a few episodes ago we had a guest on who was talking about the struggles they were having with kind of um data versioning actually and you know what happens when the ontology of uh, your labels changes mid-process and then what this means for your subsequent experiments and how you could get this all to kind of seamlessly kind of go together and yeah people in library sciences have been thinking about these kinds of things for (laughs) for a while right Mm -hmm. they have certainly have relevant and useful expertise in that domain yeah i think so and i um i i do think hopefully that is a kind of uh you know collaboration that will be explored more so the the kind of interest that libraries have in machine learning is also kind of reciprocated both ways and i think that could be a a quite a fruitful um fruitful exchange and i think also you know on very particular things like you know like you said with ontologies but also around documentation um i think there's a growing recognition and uh, practice of documenting things, but I think that is still emerging as a kind of best practice. And um, I think having uh, some input from libraries there could also be quite useful. Um, I'm curious, just before we close up, um, if there are any, um, I don't know, things or projects which you feel are, kind of low-hanging fruit i guess um in 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 this world or perhaps even in in different domains where people can um particularly if they're coming from the world of machine learning and want to kind of bring their skills to bear in a useful way um uh, other projects or initiatives and things which maybe people could get involved in yeah i think there's various different um ways people could get at that i mean i think one thing to say is that libraries are in general quite keen on sharing their data um i think one potential uh challenge that i think libraries are thinking about is how to share that in a way that is uh easily accessible for kind of machine learning uh use cases so um moving away from sharing things at the item level to saying like you can download like all of this collection in an easy way um, so I think giving feedback to institutions, I think libraries and archives are always like very happy to have people get in touch and say, hey, I want to work with this collection, but you're making it difficult for this reason. I think that's something that 
would definitely be a useful intervention. Um, I think there are also some quite interesting data sets that you could potentially work with. So part of this big lamb initiative, you know, part of my thinking with that was slightly like, you know, if you build it, they will come. So like some of the data sets are actually quite challenging to work with. Um, and not, yeah, it's not just like, oh, this is like an easy ML problem. It happens to be uh, art history. It's actually like uh, an interesting data set to work with. So um, I think that could be uh, also something if people really want to get stuck into a particular collection that, you know, exploring some of those data sets and seeing how well uh, you can kind of do on those quite uh yeah, challenging data sets could be really interesting. Um, and then I guess uh, the other areas, like, you know, if you really wanted to be more involved, I think initiatives like AI for Lamb and this kind of carpentries thing I mentioned, I think uh, are very open to, you know, whoever wants to get involved. So I think even if you're not from that world, but have an interest, I think that, um, yeah, it could be a, a useful contribution. And I, uh I know from, you know, various different projects that people who don't necessarily have a, a library background, you know, have found it really interesting working with that kind of data because I think it is a little bit different from the usual data sets you might work with, but also, yeah, some of the other challenges you might face in a library setting can actually be kind of interesting to to think about. And there are affordances that libraries have that other uh, kind of domains might not have so one big one is that there's often existing metadata so even if you don't have the labels you want for a kind of machine learning problem you might have a lot of other data about that item that you can somehow uh utilize in kind of developing uh a data set uh through things like weak supervision or incorporating into your model so i think that is another area that potentially could be quite interesting and fun to explore for people Great, thank you. That's, that's a useful useful set of things that people can think about. Um, so we usually end these podcasts with a couple of questions. Um, I've sort of adapted them uh, a little bit to, to your specific um, uh, background. Um, so you can take them in whatever direction you, you want. Um, first one, um, what, would, what do you think would be a kind of a quick win that someone can add um, by working with ML in the archival uh, library and museum sector yeah i mean i think the image classification tasks where even if it's like a binary thing uh like is this page illustrated or not or does it contain a table or not i think there's actually a surprising number of use cases where that kind of information is useful even if it doesn't solve everything um so yeah thinking about all of those things that you can crowbar into like a fairly simple image classification problem, I think could be a very useful starting point. And what would you say would be one part of using these technologies or these tools that you feel needs more attention by people who build the tools? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's a, an interesting one. I guess, you know, going back a little bit to what I mentioned earlier, I think one thing is, um, not assuming that everyone is fully in the cloud and kind of um, Kubernetes uh, 
kind of friendly setup. So I think that isn't necessarily an easy thing for tool developers to uh, always facilitate because it, it can also just be uh, difficult to get around that. But I think that could be one. And then I guess, you know, my big interest is just like how uh, tools or processes for doing annotation can be better integrated into the overall pipeline because it does often feel like you can have quite a nice kind of pipeline that fits together but there's this like messy bit where humans get involved and then it's like how do I kind of conceptually and like practically make that fit without it just being like this is like all neat and organized and then this bit like yeah that's just kind of like push the data in every so often and kind of ignore where it came from so I think that component would be really interesting if people kind of could yeah refine that in some way yeah well i think people are working on that um <laughs> hopefully hopefully it will will become a little bit more ergonomic and yeah useful mm-hmm. um, well thank you very much for coming on um definitely learned a lot and it was really interesting hearing about kind of um yeah uh, approaches to to ml outside the industry which i think are are a real and important thing that can't just be ignored um, so yeah well thank you for having me on thank you for listening to this latest episode of pipeline conversations if you enjoyed what you heard please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts it helps us get seen by more people and of course it's always nice to receive feedback if you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast at zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.